right, well, good afternoon. It's my honor to welcome you all to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I am Judge April Wood. On this panel today, I am joined by Judge Jefferson Griffin, who is to my right, and by Judge Julie Flood, who is to my left. We have two arguments that are on our calendar today for oral arguments. Um, our courtroom clerk today is um, Eddie Sanders, Mr. Eddie Sanders. Our uh, Court of Appeals Marshal is Officer Richard Rumiard. And uh, we have, as I said, two arguments. The first argument that is on our calendar today for oral arguments is State versus Stephen Cannon. And if there are no further preliminary matters, we will go ahead and hear from the appellate. And counsel, have you already asked to reserve some rebuttal time? I have, Your Honor. Five minutes, if the court please. All right. Thank you very much. You can go ahead. Members of the court, I'm Clark Fisher of the 23rd District Bar, representing the appellant Stephen Cannon in this matter. And this vehicular homicide case presents two significant issues. The first is whether the trial court committed constitutional error under the Fourth Amendment by allowing a warrantless blood draw that was inflicted upon the defendant without a warrant. And you can phrase that issue more specifically as we'll get into this afternoon. And more specifically, I would contend the issue is whether the officer's lack of knowledge about how even to obtain a warrant for blood and his mistaken belief that no warrant was even necessary in the case of a vehicular fatality matter justified the blood draw here when any delay, one of the exigent circumstances cited by the trial court, would have been minimal. Second issue is whether even if we assume the blood draw was properly admissible, whether the evidence, even with that, was sufficient to withstand the defendant's motions to dismiss. Now, as to exigent circumstances, both sides agree on the applicable law. Indeed, we, we cite many of the same cases in our briefs. Clearly, we all would agree that exigent circumstances have been defined as exceptional factors in which the law enforcement interest in obtaining evidence outweighs a citizen's right to privacy under the Fourth Amendment. Under the Supreme Court's controlling authorities, and I will contend the McNeely versus Missouri case is the most important one, it's clear that the mere fact that alcohol dissipates in the blood does not create any per se exigency authorizing police to dispense with the warrant requirements that the framers of the Constitution, way back when, deemed so important. Now, one point I would like to ask the court to consider is when you look at the record and the transcript in this case, this is really not an alcohol case at all. The field breathalyzer performed on Stephen Cannon it's a little unclear from the record whether it was Officer Poparova who did the blood draw or a state highway patrol, but clearly a field breathalyzer was done, and the result was .03, way below what our legal limit for alcohol would be. Officer Poparova's testimony was that as to any odor of alcohol, it was faint at most, and I will say from doing a lot of DWI cases over the years, I'm not sure I've ever seen an officer say there wasn't at least a moderate odor of alcohol, so this was something that kind of jumped out at me. Okay, so before we get too far into the facts, yes, sir. would you agree that um, none of the trial court's findings of facts are, are challenged in this matter? 
That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. We, the the issue is whether under de novo review the trial court reached the proper legal conclusion. Right. I would certainly concur with that. Okay. Now, in this case, saying that this wasn't really an alcohol case based upon what we just talked about, Officer Pokorova's testimony at the suppression hearing, which is in the record, was that he believed that any impairment was based on either pills or inhalants, though he wasn't really sure. And what I'd like the court to consider is that this issue of dissipation of alcohol, which is really what pretty much all the precedents that are cited in the briefs refer to, is less significant in controlled substance cases for a couple of different reasons. One, we don't have any presumptive level of when impairment might be deemed appreciable for purposes of a DWI or a vehicular homicide based on DWI based upon a level. We don't have that. Secondly, I would contend the whole notion of dissipation is less significant than it may have been in years past because the whole notion of retrograde extrapolation is used with great regularity in trial courts, has been recognized on appeal many times, and the science is really clear. So I think those are factors that we do have to think about when we determine whether Are you making a concession that retrograde uh, extrapolation is an effective tool? <laughs> I think it is a tool that the state can have in its arsenal to present to the jury. Now, that's an whether or not that's an interesting argument for a, for a DWI attorney. Uh, well, I, I'm saying it's there. They can try it. It doesn't mean the jury is going to buy it in every case, but it was something in their wheelhouse in this case and would be in any similar case. So, counsel, let me just ask you a question. We're talking yes, about Honor. the exigent circumstances. How do you distinguish your case from State v. Granger, where the court held, you know, that even a, a smaller delay than the delay here um, that the uh, officer testified to was sufficient to warrant the officer doing a blood draw based on exigent circumstances, where there the court upheld that the officer's knowledge of the approximate wait time, the time needed to travel, being over 40 minutes round trip to the magistrate at the county jail, um, it constituted exigent circumstances. And here we had even a much more significant delay that the officer testified to. Well, I had a hunch that Granger was going to come up this afternoon, so I just happened to have it with me right here. And I think there's a couple of significant factual distinctions. And of course, Missouri versus McNeely makes clear that each case has to be looked at on the totality of circumstances in that particular case. Unlike that case, we're talking about drug suspicion here, not alcohol. Granger was purely an alcohol case. There was only a single officer present in Granger who could have made arrangements to obtain the warrant if they hadn't just gone directly to the blood draw. Um, in this case, the evidence was from Officer Pokoroba. Again, he estimated there were probably 20 some officers around. And we know State Highway Patrol was around because there was a reference to them possibly being involved in the blood draw. Well, so I think those also, are significant. Didn't he also testify, though, that they were in the middle of a shift change? Well, that is certainly true. And what that was one of the things that the trial court mentioned as one of the exigent circumstances. So let's look at what the evidence was, what the testimony was. And again, everything on suppression came solely from Officer Pokorova. He was the only officer who was presented to the court. Prosecutor specifically asked him about the shift change. What does that mean with regard to the accident investigation? And what he said, and I'm 
summarizing up to a point. Well, he was staying over, which I guess means he was over his shift. His current sergeant wasn't there, and then the quote was, everybody was kind of just doing their thing, whatever that means. And that was the extent of the evidence about the shift change. There was no evidence presented about, well, how many officers were on duty, who would have been available to assist as necessary beyond these other 20 officers that are around somewhere with handling the warrant application in this case. Just everybody was doing their own thing. So yeah, it was mentioned, but it was mentioned without any detail, any precision whatsoever. There was nothing about how this shift change specifically impacted Officer Pokoroba's ability to get the warrant in this case. So I think that um, if you look at the specifics, the totality of our circumstances, that is significant as to the shift change issue. And again, I do think it's significant, looking at our totality, that Officer Pokoroba very candidly stated that he really had no idea about how to get a warrant for a blood draw anyway. Uh, he said, I quote, I would have had to locate somebody that could have showed me how to do it. So again, if you kind of think, you know, maybe what's really going on here, the officer doesn't know how to do it. He's not sure what's going on. There's a mistake floating around, because this is referenced in the record, somewhere in his chain of command that is communicated back to Officer Pokoropa, clearly showing there's other officers available that he's talking to, that you don't have to do it anyway because it's a fatality case. And of course, I think we would all agree there is no such statutory authority whatsoever. And indeed, if you had that, just like um, was dealt with in the Romano case, that would violate Missouri versus McNeely. So there's considerable confusion. And I, you know, when you consider Officer Pokoroba again, he'd been with the Tarboro Police Department for seven years, pretty long time. And it's a little hard to understand why he wouldn't have had some instruction or some familiarity with the warrant application process, which I would contend is a basic aspect of law enforcement duties. So then we get down to the time, as you mentioned, Judge Wood, and the estimate in this case was it would have taken about an hour. Looks like the driving distance to the magistrate's office was something less than four miles and maybe a little less than three miles from the magistrate's office to get to the hospital. Something under 10 minutes, around nine minutes, I believe, was what was related in the record. Well, unlike some of the other cases we see, there's no indication that the officer was particularly experienced with how long it was gonna to take to get the warrant. Again, how could he be? He doesn't know how to get the warrant anyway, by his own words. So, a delay, somewhere in the framework of an hour. But again, when you consider the fact it's not really an alcohol case, you've got other means to handle yes, it. Yes, you need to explain to me why the, you're hanging on the alcohol. It's not really an alcohol case. There's alcohol present, correct? I mean, he, got a, a he got a positive a little bit. Yes, sir. response on the, well, he got a positive response on the alcohol sensor. Correct, 0 .03. You've got, what, evidence of other inhalants or other drugs that he doesn't know. He knows this guy's, uh, your client is, is not acting right at the scene under his, his assessment. Is that correct? Well, I think his words were there was a 
disconnect. There was some reference to him having glassy eyes. Um, so certainly that was there at that point. But you got another conspicuous failing in a DWI case when we look at the whole circumstances. There was absolutely no field performance test done whatsoever. Officer Pokorobo later on said, well, I, I guess I should have done that, but he didn't do it. And also, he also was on cross-examination, um, had to admit, well, yeah, I'm telling you now, I was concerned about inhalants, but there's nothing in his report about inhalants. I guess, I guess my question is, is this, is this officer, this line officer, I guess from the transcript and his admission, probably not the most experienced. Is he supposed to be a, a, a chemist or a DRE, a, a drug recognition expert, and to the point that he knows how fast uh, these possible impairing substances are dissipating in, in, uh, in this person's system? Uh, as an expert, obviously not. Not a, not a DRE, but as a line officer, like every line officer in every police department we have, he's supposed to know the basics of conducting a DWI arrest because that is part and parcel of his duties. He was a patrol officer at the time. So I think he is charged with a certain minimum level of knowledge, which includes how to get a warrant. I'm, I'm not sure I can express that any more clearly, Judge Griffin, but I do think that's one of our significant circumstances in the case. The officers for whatever reasons, didn't know how to do this. And I would continue. Right, I, I recognize that, and that was something he, he admitted. However, uh, I, I don't see how he can say he doesn't know uh, or, or he should have the knowledge of, of knowing what, how these substances dissipate in somebody's system, uh, not knowing what, what this guy has inhaled or ingested, other than he knows there's a little bit of alcohol. Uh, it seems like you're, you're trying to impute on him some chemist knowledge that uh, is, is just saying for him to say uh, there are no exigent circumstances based off the information he has at the time. Well, the information he had at the time was there was a wreck, not much alcohol. We have unopened beer cans strewn about the road, and there is apparently an aerosol. And he said he was suspicious at that point. He did not, in his testimony at the suppression hearing, if I recall it correctly, and I think the same is true of his trial testimony, ever say he was concerned about any dissipation of any substance, alcohol, drugs, or not. He just wanted to go ahead and take the most direct route for his own reasons that were, I think, unrelated to the particulars of this case. I don't think that's requiring him to be a chemist. No, that's, that's unreasonable. Nobody's suggesting that. He didn't have to be a DRE, but one would think he probably would have heard something from drug recognition experts along the way. Again, our record is silent as to all of that. So again, moving on a little bit, let's consider our particular time frame. According to Officer Pokoroba, 7.21 p.m. was when he arrived at the accident scene. Cannon is arrested shortly thereafter, taken to the Vidant emergency room about five miles away, blood draw 910, one hour and 45 minutes, 49 minutes. So again, not a particularly long time, certainly more than Granger, and I can go back to what you had asked me about Granger, Your Honor. The officer 
And Granger testified that he was particularly concerned because the defendant was at the hospital. And one of the things I believe that he was particularly worried about was they were going to give him pain medication because of his injuries, and that was going to skew the results. So again, I think that's a significantly different factor than we have here. Again, just a few more factors um, that I like the court to consider. There was no indication from the record that the magistrate was not available. Again, the shift change I think we've already talked about, and even if you consider that shift change is a factor, I think it's a dangerous precedent to suggest that the Fourth Amendment's applicability has some change based upon the particular manning requirements of any particular police station. I don't think there's any authority to suggest that. So again, bottom line, our position is when you look at our totality of the circumstances, this case should have gone to the magistrate. And if it had gone to the magistrate, and again, we don't know because it didn't happen, but if it had, the magistrate would have been presented with a very low ALCA sensor, lack of field tests, only a faint odor of alcohol, and who knows, he might not have found probable cause at all. But regardless, under the Fourth Amendment, in these circumstances and on these facts, the defendant had a right for the magistrate to consider it before what the Birchfield case, the Supreme Court noted that a blood draw is a lot different than a breath test in terms of its invasiveness. Now, unless the court had any other questions on the exigent circumstances, I'd like to just briefly discuss, discuss the sufficiency of the evidence. Argument. So on the, do you think it's important that in the suppression order, uh, the trial judge found, as it addressed the uh, shift changes to the high volume of traffic throughout the Tarboro Police Department, is that, is that impactful too in, in the analysis? What, whatever that means. I'm just saying, you know, certainly we're not challenging the finding of fact, but as to what, how that high volume or shift change, however you designate it, affected, in this case, Officer Pokorova's ability to get this warrant rather than proceed as he did, I suggest the record is insufficient. You probably could ask some questions to flesh it out one way or another, but again, we don't make the record. We deal with it as it is. But... Let's just assume, okay, blood test is good, comes in. Was there sufficient evidence of impairment to sustain this conviction? Now, the trial court properly instructed, you cannot convict him second-degree murder on this case unless you find impairment. So let's look at what the state's evidence was. And this is the state's evidence, because the defense while they did offer a witness, they didn't put forward a whole lot of affirmative evidence. The passenger in the car, a gentleman named Bobby Hardy, testified that he'd been with Cannon throughout the day, and Cannon had neither had alcohol nor drugs for at least five hours before the accident. According to the state's witness here, Cannon did not appear to be impaired. And again, we've talked about the roadside breathalyzer, the limited odor of alcohol, but then let's consider Officer Pokoroba again. And I know it sounds like we're just beating up on him, but we really can't help it in this case because of the nature of the evidence. At the suppression hearing, he clearly was asked the, the question we see in every DWI case. You know, have you formed an opinion as to sufficient quantity of an impairing substance? 
And he answered yes, and then they went on to discuss the other factors. But in front of the jury, and this is specifically volume two of the transcript, pages 113 and 114, they asked the question, and again, I don't have that right in front of me to read, but my recollection is that what he said was he wasn't really sure. He never answered the question, and they talked about his suspicion, and then they went on to, and then you got the blood draw. I did not read anything before the jury from Officer Poparova's testimony that he gave that kind of ultimate opinion, which we have in DWI case. So what else did the state offer? Well, you've got several expert witnesses. You've got the ER doctor, Dr. Weathers, apparently very experienced, been in the ER for decades, it seemed, and had examined Mr. Cannon before. Talked about finding the benzodiazepam, which I guess is Valium, and cocaine in the blood. But his testimony was that Mr. Cannon could have used those drugs as much as two to four days before the accident. And his specific word as to whether the presence of these substances could have affected his faculties was that that was a possibility. That's not my word, that's not an advocate's word, that was his word before the jury. And then we go on and they asked him questions about Mr. Cannon's actual physical exam and Dr. Weathers described the defendant as oriented and alert. Again, that does not sound particularly probative of impairment, certainly not at a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. So then we went on to Dr. Cash, who was an expert pathologist that the state called. Again, he talked about the metabolites of cocaine and the benzodiazepine, and his testimony was only that those could remain in the system for several days following the use. And then we got to SBI toxicologist Rowland, and I think this calls for significant examination. She was tendered by the prosecution as an expert in forensic science and toxicology and pharmacology. In pharmacology, you're getting pretty close to a drug recognition expert there. But over defense objection, this court, trial court, would not accept her tender as a pharmacologist. So she went on to say that there was, by her analysis, a blood alcohol reading 0.02, positive readings for the cocaine and benzodiazepine, and however you pronounce that aerosol, because I will never be able to do that. Her testimony about the aerosol was that it could leave the body as little as four minutes, maybe up to 201 minutes. I'm not sure how you get that precise, but that was what she said. Now, all that's suspicious, but here's what's missing, and this kind of comes back to the question you asked, I think, originally, Judge Griffin, about drug recognition experts. She's not testifying as a drug recognition expert. The prosecution has not, therefore, presented any drug recognition experts. So on the issue of appreciable impairment, in other words, what would the effect of these various substances, either individually or collectively, in his bloodstream have been, the link's just not established. 
you can see what they're trying to do. And I'm pretty sure the prosecution thought they were going to get Ms. Rowland. So if a jury found a defendant guilty of impaired driving, they could, they could do that with any alcohol level in somebody's system, right? If they found appreciable impairment. Sure, correct? sure. Okay. So we've got a, at a minimum here, you've got the defendant crossing over a center line with a head-on fatality of a wreck here, and then they've got either what you said under the Alka sensor is a .03 or .02, whatever they, they brought in eventually during the trial. Um, couldn't a jury find somebody guilty of impaired driving with those, with that information alone? I would, that's sufficient? I would contend not, Your Honor. I think it's much more akin to the scenario that we had in the Eldred case and I believe the Nizal case, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, where there was huge evidence of impairment. Now, there were some different issues about timing in that case. And of course, here, you've got to determine, the jury would have had to determine that he was impaired as a result of some impairing substance at or at some relevant time when the wreck took place. Right, but we've got in this one, there's there's evidence of more because he's got you know, a impairing substance kind of cocktail going on with the alcohol and the drugs. Do you agree there? Uh, I don't think I'd call it a cocktail, Judge. And I think if um, we are going to make that argument, certainly a good argument, get me a drug recognition expert or a competent pharmacologist to make that link. That is what is required. Again, we, we try these in district court all the time. There are many, many officers throughout the state certified as drug recognition experts. You would have thought that's what it would have taken to turn this from the conjecture and suspicion. Many cases from this court and the Supreme Court have said it's not enough to submit the case to the jury. It's suspicious as can be. I totally grant you that. But without that link of the controlled substances, and again, back to field performance test, and you've got the medical evidence offered by the state that he was alert and oriented, I would contend it doesn't go past the suspicion or conjecture well, standard. Don't you have Ms. Rowland testifying as to the five substances that were found in your client's blood and testifying that they were all impairing substances? Sure. As well as the dust off being in the vehicle at the time of the fatality and then the, um, I believe it is difluorothane, which is in the dust off I'm being defer to in you the on blood, that, as well as the officer testifying that your client had slow, hard, slurred speech and seemed to be impaired. Isn't that, in that totality of circumstances, enough for a jury to convict? Judge, I would contend not. Again, I think you're getting close. I definitely do, but I do believe this is a whole lot less than we had in the case where I think, I, I love the opinion where it started, you know, smoked up, you know, smoked up on meth and all of these other horrible factors, ran off the road, maybe a jury, and I'm summarizing here, could find the person guilty, but because we cannot convict on suspicion or conjecture, conviction had to be set aside. And I would submit respectfully, that's what we're dealing with here. And unless the court had any other questions, I would reserve the balance of any time. Any other questions? It's nice to be here in person. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Okay. Now we will hear from counsel for the state.
please the court. I'm John Congleton from the Attorney General's Office, of course, representing the state in this matter. It is, of course, a pleasure to be here. This case is a very interesting case. Um, I would like to follow essentially the same basic order as it was presented in the briefs, and specifically starting with the issue of exigent circumstances. What I think is most compelling in this case is the testimony, again, we can always talk about what testimony we wish we would have gotten from the parties in these hearings, but from what we did, did get, the trial court made its findings a fact, which are not contested here. The trial court you know, specifically did find and note specific uh, facts and circumstances that supported a finding of exigent circumstances. Uh, specifically the fact that you had this accident that occurred, uh, the investigation of that accident took, I think, between the time the accident occurred and the time the blood was actually drawn, essentially agreed roughly an hour and 50 minutes. Um, the officer testified during this hearing specifically that there were officers there, there were a lot of things going on. My recollection from the actual facts is this occurs on a very busy, I think, multi-lane highway in near a Walmart on a Sunday afternoon in the summertime at about seven o'clock. And so we can assume, of course, and you know, we talk about, well, I think there's some conjecture that there's all these officers just standing around that could have been running off and doing a warrant instead of anything else. But I don't think that's really a reasonable inference from what was going on with this scope of an accident. And specifically, someone had to be you know, doing various investigations and measurements. You had probably people dealing with onlookers and family members who were there. You had people probably having to direct traffic around this scene. There was, we don't know all of the exact details of what every officer did or even when there were, were there 20 officers there at the beginning but then got called away to other duties. Or were they there an hour and 50 minutes later? We do know from the testimony that the scene was still active at that time because Officer Pokoroba indicated, as, as I recall the, my reading of it, was that he had carried the defendant to the hospital. They still hadn't extracted uh, Miss Merchant from the vehicle. Um, but to begin with, the officer does testify, and, and I want to clarify this too. We indicate, look, this isn't an alcohol case, and I beg to differ. This is an alcohol case because we know there was alcohol in his system. We had a positive PBT. We had an admission to having drank earlier that day. We did have alcohol. I believe the indication was at most, it was, it was a little bit unclear exactly. There was no clear count, but a lot of the beers that were there were apparently new beers that had been purchased at Walmart that had busted open or were still intact. But we know that there was alcohol present because of the positive PBT. I would also like to make a quick point that I think we need to be very careful here. And specifically, the actual PBT reading is not admissible by statute. It should have never come out. That was improper. Now, once it was brought out, I believe by the defendant's counsel, I guess we could get into arguments about, oh, now it's fair game. And perhaps I could then argue to this court, that works in our favor because a much smaller alcohol concentration, we have much less time to capture that before it completely dissipates then we lose the ability to argue. Testimony that was later given by, I believe, Dr. Renson and perhaps even Dr. Cash and Ms. Rowland that alcohol enhances the impairing effects of some of these drugs. 
or the sedative effects of these drugs. I think Mr. Renson used, uh, pardon me, Dr. Renson used slightly different terminology. But the point becomes, I think this court needs to be very aware that in its opinions, if we start going, hey, let's consider that, we're now opening up the door to this sort of, hey, y'all just go out there and spit it out and then we'll deal with it when there's been a very clear legislative sort of intent that that not come in. But that being said, we know we have positive alcohol there, so we know we have dissipation of that. We also know specifically from the testimony that the officer at the scene began to suspect that there were other things going on and specifically indicated, I believe it may have been inhalants, I believe there's testimony about, well, it may have been pills, something else was going on because the level of intoxication, my word, that he's observing with this particular defendant does not match the result that he did get on the PBT without getting into that number. And so the officer knows something's there. And of course, whether it's alcohol or whether it's cocaine or whether it's Ativan, Suboxone, whether it's Zoloft, whether it's Valium, or any of these other sort of panoply of, if I may use Ms. Rowland's words, intoxicating substances that were found in the defendant's blood, whether or not they're alcohol, they still dissipate. We have testimony to that too. In the case of difluorethine, assuming that's close, difluorethine, um, in that case, you had testimony that the studies indicated that that lasts somewhere between four minutes and I think 210 minutes in all of the studies. And that across the board, the average time that that stays in a person's system is approximately an hour. Regardless of all that, these things dissipate, whether it's alcohol or whether it's not. And in fact, if we want to kind of get out into the nether regions here of, of this thing, we talk about retrograde extrapolation. Okay, we've got this science that we know alcohol degrades at exactly this rate over this amount of time and we have this set number. We don't specifically have that for, say, cocaine or the other things. So how can we pop up then and say, you know, that somehow they're, they're different. Those intoxicants, there's no exigency in getting those, only alcohol. And I think I, I would have to disagree with saying that this is not an alcohol case or that there's somehow some difference between drugs or otherwise when that evidence is dissipating, it is going away. And they don't know, the, granted the officer can't say standing at a roadside, he can't look at a person and say he has cocaine and he has heroin. Again, maybe we can get into this DRE aspect of well it's consistent with this or consistent with that. That's what the blood test is for. The officer also testified when we get back to that exigency. The officer specifically mentioned the call volumes in Tarboro on Sundays um, in the afternoon. He talked about, hey, this is a shift change. Some of the people had already left. You got new people are coming on that have other, not saying that, but other things to do. You got this traffic going through there. And his, and I also need to point out, the officer's testimony was not, I don't know how to get a warrant. The officer's testimony was, I'm familiar with how to get a warrant. I've never done a blood test warrant and I'm not familiar with that process, which is slightly different. This is not a situation where you have an officer who has no idea what his job is. Maybe he's never been faced with that before. He's, but he indicated very clearly in his testimony, I know how to do a search warrant. I've written search warrants before. Never done a blood one. I'm gonna have to have somebody kind of explain this to me. He also indicated not only that, but we do have the drive times. We can talk about Granger and the 
you know, his, his estimate, of course, is at least an hour. But also he indicated, hey, I'm either going to have to drive him all the way over to the magistrate's office and all the way back over to the hospital, or I'm going to have to try to find some officer in the midst of this chaos that can come and take custody of this guy in the meantime. Can't just turn him loose and then come back and go grab him. And, no. So it's very clear that all this is going on. He does have these conversations with some officers on the telephone about, hey, how do I do this, or do I need this, or do I not? It's a little bit unclear as to exactly what they said there, um, but they did sort of indicate that at least it, it, it appears to be clear that the impression was they were telling him, hey, look, you don't have to go and get the warrant. I don't think it's particularly clear why that was, whether they believed he had exigent circumstances or whether they believed that the statute said something different or whether Mr. Uh, pardon me, Officer Pokorova somehow mixed up what they were telling. But we're stuck with, with what he testifies to there. Good with that. But the point becomes, here's what we do have. We do have this fear of dissipation of both the alcohol and the drug components that he suspects. And we have his knowledge of this local area, it being Tarboro, it being a summer afternoon, it being, what, eight, nine o'clock, um, the call volumes that are occurring and the fact that you've got a shift change with people doing other things, he indicates that all these things are gonna add approximately an hour to that process. And I would, I would argue that that is consistent with other cases that indicate, hey, that's, that's a permissible reason, A, for exigent circumstances, and B, that time period is significant enough to trigger finding. Now, absent further questions specifically about the exigency in this case, what I would then move on to is counsel frame this as, well, this is a constitutional violation, which, you know, we always get into that great big elephant in the back of the room that every time you walk out of a, every time you submit a brief or every time you walk out of a courtroom, usually in your car halfway home, you realize, dang, I should have pointed out the great big elephant over here. And in this case, what do we do? if we say that, okay, we have a violation. We have a constitutional violation. Well, then our remedy is, how do we get there? Harmless error. One thing we haven't talked about is, all of these same drugs were found without objection and were put in front of the jury, well, at least the benzodiazepines and the cocaine metabolites were put in front of the jury from the urinalysis that Dr. Renson Weathers testified to, and that those particular drugs had that sedative effect as he used. Miss Rowland testified that those drugs were impairing substances as listed by the lab. But we're not going to stand on just that either because now we're going to move into, okay, there's no evidence here, sufficient evidence here that he was impaired. The cocaine in his blood, the benzodiazepines in his blood, without suppression, we'll say the difluorine in his blood. We have the red glassy eyes. We have the, the incidents of the collision where his passenger says the truck starts pulling to the right and he's kind of slumped over in the floorboard and I go to grab the wheel and we hit this thing. They said the tire blew out. Expert says the tire was still inflated when they hit this uh, merchant's vehicle. No evidence that that story was correct. In fact, it's discredited by the expert. Then we have, again, Red glassy eyes. We have slurred speech. The two officers, one of them slurred speech, one of them I believe was hard, slow, hard to understand speech. We have a disconnect here where the defendant seems to be worried about his truck. 
he does not seem to be on the same page as the officers about how the seriousness of this accident. And it's interesting to read Officer Poparoba's testimony where he's saying, he's essentially suggesting this is, this is impairment much more than just a positive PBT such that I'm expecting, A, I'm surprised by the, this reading, but B, there has to be something else. And there's evidence again, there's beer cans, there's inhalant cans if we wish to, to talk about the di difluorothene. But the point becomes you have a person here who is displaying red glassy eyes, slurred speech, hard to understand speech. He's disconnected with the things going around. You have a fatality where he knows he has killed someone and he's going, man, I love that truck. His blood shows cocaine. His blood shows benzodiazepines in conjunction with positive alcohol. He did admit alcohol. I believe he also admitted taking Suboxone. I believe that was the anti-seizure medication he talked about, that was talked about. I think that I don't see how you can say a jury couldn't find that he was impaired from that. When in, again, seven o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, he somehow ends up without a blowout, head owning a vehicle in clear conditions, some reason slumped over in the seat for these drugs in his system, alcohol in his system. I think there's overwhelming evidence there. And I could get into all the case law. I, th I think we all agree the case law is what the case law is as far as, you know, again, um, exigent circumstances in general, the Dizal cases, the McNeely's, the Romano's, none of those really play into this except for the fact that this does fit within the confines, the, the time periods, the, the reasons given all fit. The trial court that was in the proper position to hear the evidence, judge the witnesses, made those uncontradicted findings of fact and ruled to that effect. And given the totality of the circumstances, we would argue that it's clear there were exigent circumstances. The order's sufficient for this court to find that, and it's very clear that the sufficiency of the evidence in this case is there. It's overwhelming. And in any event, any, any other, I think I would be not doing my duty to the court to point out that if, in fact, the court were to say, you know what, we're going to throw out the blood test, you have still got a urinalysis that pretty much covers the yeah, it covers the cocaine, it covers the benzos, it covers the sedative effect, it covers the alcohol. The testimony of Dr. Weathers, I think, makes it clear that this would be a harmless error. Given that there are no questions, I'm going to rest on my brief. Thank you. I'm set. Thank you, counsel. Just briefly, if I may. You may. And I certainly understand and appreciate the state's argument and I suspect, though I wasn't here, I don't know for sure, but I suspect a similar argument was made probably in that State versus Eldred case, the one I was mentioning a little while ago, where the court found the evidence insufficient. Again, with uh, Judge Inman starting off writing, 100 feet of tire impressions veer off a highway, past a scuffed boulder, and end at a damaged, unoccupied vehicle whose registered owner is found walking along the same highway disoriented, admits being smoked up on meth. Most anyone would surmise what happened and might very well be right. But because the law prohibits imposing criminal liability based on conjecture, gaps in the evidence, and controlling precedent required that the convictions be reversed. In this case, the gap 
is that link that some sort of expert testimony between these various substances, call them a cocktail, call them whatever, on the issue of appreciable impairment. When you balance that in a system with the lack of field tests, the faint odor of alcohol, and the other evidence we've discussed. Now, as, as to Officer Pokoroba, back to him. I guess we started with him. We'll, we'll finish up with Officer Pokoroba on what he knew or didn't know about getting a warrant. The specific question as was. To the, as to the field tests, I mean, would that have added time to the whole encounter if he did field sobriety tests? Well, see, one leg stand, instructions, walk and turn, and HGN, 10 minutes maybe. I mean, it, it depends. Yeah. Not a long time, but we certainly consider that a normal part. I have, I, have a, I have a feeling you've tried a few DWIs in the trial court. Would would you say it's you know, questionable to administer field sobriety tests um, to somebody who's just been in a head-on collision? Um, if they're on a gurney heading in the ambulance, absolutely that would be weird. If you are otherwise oriented talking and you apparently are oriented enough that you can answer questions from the officer and have a dialogue with him, then I think absolutely it would be routine practice and accepted practice to do so as part of any normal DWI case. But isn't it just that, just a routine and accepted practice, but not a requirement for an officer to charge DWI? Well, we're, we're getting back into that totality of the, the circumstances here. I think that is deemed, and uh, we may have done this in district court way back when, Judge Wood. Uh, I think that's considered a crucial part of the evidence, both as to probable cause and as to the ultimate issue of impairment. And it's not, not written down in a statute, but boy, there sure are an awful lot of training materials that we have heard about from NATA and all around about that. So um, the only other thing I'd like just to, to mention, on, just on the issue about what I contend is really what happened here, that the officer just didn't know how to do this, so he didn't want to bother with it, at the suppression hearing, the district attorney specifically asked Officer Pokoroba that if you would have got a search warrant, what would you have had to do? And his specific answer was, not talking about blood or no blood, just search warrants. At that point in my career, honestly, I would have had to locate somebody that could have showed me how to do it. And again, I think that is um, an unusual factor that we have here. So again, for the reasons set forth in the brief, um, I very much respect and appreciate the Attorney General's argument. This case, the evidence not nearly as bad as it was in Eldred and Nassau. They could have gotten a warrant. They should have got the warrant. The Fourth Amendment is out there for a reason. Thank you. Thank you, counsel, for your arguments. And uh, at this point in time, the case is submitted. And so thank you all. We do have one more case on our docket for oral arguments. We, that is the matter of Enray Chastain. We are going to take a brief five-minute recess um, in between to allow counsel to readjust and set up. And so we'll be in recess for five minutes. <laughs>